Welcome to our How to Wow Summer Run 2023 and a series of wondrous conversations recorded live at Carfest last year. Carfest is a not-for-profit well-being, music, food, superstar and motorcar festival that has so far raised circa £25 million for UK children's charities. Check out what's happening this year by going to carfest.org. Carfest.org, that is, where you'll see our best ever lineup of guest hosts and rock and rollers, yet many of them staying with us the whole weekend, including the likes of Richard Hammond, Rob Brydon, Jimmy Carr, Lee Mack, Bryony Gordon, Eddie Izzard, Rick Astley, Craig David, Russell and Laura Brand, Texas McFly, the actual village people, Alex Horn, Angela Hartnett, Matt Tebbett, Michael Keynes, Atul Kutcher, Freya Ridings, Ben Miller, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, Dr. Reapy, the happy pair, Melanie Sykes, the Feelings, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Razorlight, Gokwan, Reef, The Bootleg Beatles and only Peter Flipping Andre, plus all the amazing car content, of course. Go to carfest.org now and come join us this August bank holiday weekend. And welcome to another Carfest pop-up How to Hour special. Today's featuring superstarring in conversation with Louise Minchin, the one, the only Sir Chris Hoy discussing his career, all those gold medals and how to to achieve your goals, sporting or otherwise. Wow, thank you. Hi. Hello. Chris Hoy, here he is. Hello, everyone. Wow, everybody. Thank you so much. There's quite a few, aren't there? Hello. <laughs> Hello at the back. Can you hear us? Well, welcome. Gosh, I feel... I'm not used to seeing people watching me, and I know who you've turned out for, so very warm welcome to the lovely Sir Chris Hoy. Um, they're, and they're only here because it was raining and they're trying to get under the cover. Well, that's, I've got, that's I've got to tell you... Come on, let's be honest. I was here with Mel C yesterday, and there's a lot more people here today, Chris. Wow. Oh, yes. There we go. Anyway, um, how lovely to see you, everybody. How are you doing? Are you all doing well? Yeah. Yes, hurrah. Were you here in the rain? Yeah. Was it really brilliant? Mel C was amazing in the rain, wasn't she? Um, so hopefully it won't be like that today. Um, anyway, the lovely Sir Chris Hoy is here with me. I mean, an incredible um, Olympian. We're very lucky to have him here. We will, I'm sure there's lots of things you want to hear from him. I'm going to talk to him for a bit, and then I'm going to hand over to you, and you can ask questions. Um, and there's lots of different subjects to start with. Um, I, I'm so lucky because I've been on loads of bike rides with Sir Chris. Yes, actually have. We have, yeah. <laughs> Not in the real world, though, sadly. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I was going to come to that. Not real ones. Um, I, I've had great fun. Um, how many? We did it for a couple of years, probably. Um, but raising money for, you tell them. Yeah, for um, the Doddy Weir Foundation. So Doddy, Doddy Weir, yeah, as you know, absolute legend of, of Scottish rugby. He has so much love around the world for him. You know, an absolute giant of a man, always wears his tartan trousers, and um, very sadly was diagnosed with motor neuron disease, I think three or four years ago now. Um, you know, and he's done so much to raise money and awareness, um, alongside obviously Kevin Sinfield um, and Rob Burrow and all the guys on that side of things, the rugby league side. But yeah, Doddy, we've been doing these virtual rides on Zwift, so through the the kind of dis or January time it was, weekly rides. And Louise has been absolutely amazing for those rides. I'm the one at the back. She's the sweeper. So if you want to join us and you want to be with me, don't worry, you go very slow, very steady. They finish about an hour before I do, but that's fine. But that's anyway. a great thing because they get to ride with you. You know, you do this virtual ride and you get to ride alongside Louise Minchin or you can ride at the front with Garrett Thomas or whoever you want. So we got all these kind of, a, you know, really exciting 
people along and it's yeah it's wonderful it's weird but it's fun um anyway right so we're here at Carfest, and i know you've wanted to come to Carfest um for many years um and you are absolutely passionate aren't you about motorsport so mm. for people and lots of people will know that you are but you race don't you i do yeah i've been racing now this is my 10th season um when i finished cycling in, in london 2012 was my last ever big race 2013 started racing actually after doing a documentary about my hero, Colin McRae. So Colin was uh, a world rally champion in 1995, Scottish, drove for Subaru. I'm sure all of you know, you know well about him. He's you know, an absolute legend of the sport. And it sadly, very tragically died in a helicopter crash in 2007. So there was a documentary about his career, which I was very honored to be asked to present. And it was during the filming of that documentary, I got offered the chance to race in 2013 in a novice race series uh, and it was that was the spark that's what got me into it and i've been racing ever since i raced with nissan at the 2016 le mans 24 hour race which was a dream come true you know for a, an amateur driver to be able to compete alongside some of your professional racing driver heroes and on that iconic track such a such a legendary place so yeah um talk us through le mans i mean can you ma I, I mean i can imagine sort of but just tell us what it's like to race there because it's a very it's got to be very intense hasn't it it's it's super intense and the cars there's three different categories of car that, that are you know sort of basically slow medium and fast if you like and there's races so races within races and you've got traffic you've got to negotiate so if you're in a slower car you've got you know mark weber and the the porsche lmp1 coming past you doing 220 miles an hour at night in the rain and you know it's it's terrifying and it's exciting and it's exhilarating it's it's everything i thought it would be but more um you know just the romantic part of of endurance racing when you go out at the night into the dark and all these cars hammering through the night you know 24 hours non-stop um and you've got two teammates so it's three three drivers per team and you you rotate every two and a half hours so you do your two and a half hour half hour stint physically mentally drained you jump out the car you try and get some rest but your brain is buzzing your as brain's well. buzzing you're full of adrenaline you can't sleep and you've got to be ready when the driver before you is on the track in case he has a problem so you basically only get two and a half hours of rest but you don't sleep so you're physically and mentally exhausted by the end of it and presumably i mean it must have been a fantastic for you having you know not to, uh, cycling at the level that you were to move you know because you're a very competitive person this is your passion and find something that you could continue to do well i think a lot of sports people struggle when they retire from their sport if you've been doing it for a number of years and it's your your sole focus your main passion you know what do you do when you retire and if you wait until you retire and then start thinking well what next that's when that's when you can struggle. So for me, it was having a plan in advance, having lots of different new projects lined up. And my, my manager, my agent, was a swimmer for the Aussie team back in the 84 Olympics. So he'd, he'd been through that whole process himself. And he'd retired and he'd set up his own athlete management business. So he said to me, you have to have a plan, like you do with your training, for your cycling, for the Olympics. Have a plan in advance, know what you want to do. And motorsport really was a big part of that, that kind of weaning myself off being a full-time athlete. It's interesting calling weaning it. Um, tell me about just on rally driving as well. Is that right? Yeah, well, first, so I mean, it's, it's ironic that rallying was what got me into motorsport, what attracted me to most of motorsport with Colin McRae, but it's taken me 10 years. You know, I've done circuit racing, I've done rally cross, I've done classics, I've done all kinds of stuff, but I've never actually done a proper rally. So up in Knock Hill, it was, it was the McRae Challenge rally. It was in memory of Colin. His dad, Jimmy McRae, five-time British rally champion. His brother, Alistair, 
his, his nephew, Max, who lives out in Australia now with, with, with Alistair, he is the next big rally hope of the future. He's 18 or 19, and that was his first rally as well. So you had three generations of McRae there. You had, you know, all, some real proper legends of the sport. And I got to do a rally with, with somebody, or race for the first time with someone sitting next to me, telling me where to go, telling me flat over crest. And you're like, really? And you're like, <laughs> You've got to really trust them. But yeah, it was great fun. And that's very interesting because that's got to be, you're right, the trust that you've got to have in that person because you, you know, your life is in their hands. And vice versa as well. The, the poor guy. Um, but, Good point. <laughs> but it's, yeah, he was, he was a very calm guy. He, he used to be a co-driver for, for Jimmy McRae and for Colin um, for some really big names. So he was super calm, super relaxed. And it was a very steep learning curve, put it that way. How does that sort of adrenaline um, compare to being on the track as a cyclist? That's a good question. I, I guess, I imagine coming on the start line at the Olympic Games, you've had four years of every single training session, every single meal you've eaten, every single, you know, everything you do is about preparing for this one moment. And, this, you know, it lasts 20 or 30 seconds. So you don't have a chance to make a second, you know, if you make a mistake, that opportunity's gone. So everything is riding on this one snapshot in time. So, you know, the pressure on that is unbelievable. The result is very important because if you win the gold medal, that's great. But if you don't win, you feel like it has the, you know, the four years have been wasted. Whereas motorsport, you realize you're actually, you know, you're doing it because you, just because you love it. You're not doing it, it's not your career. It's not, you know, the, the end result is important, but it's not the be all and end all. So for me, I think the, the excitement and the adrenaline are there because you just you just love doing what you do. And I, I did love my cycling, of course. You, you have to love it as well. It's not just a job, but there was a lot more pressure. And, and that was one of the things I had to learn to cope with is, is that dealing with the pressure, keeping perspective, understanding that, you know, that the, the world will keep revolving if you don't win this race and that you're just riding a bike in an anti-clockwise circle. It's not that it's not that important, but it does feel like life, life and death. I mean, there's been so much um, written about the psychology of that. What do you think we mere mortals can learn from, you know, how to cope under extreme pressure? What would you, because we've all got pressures in our lives, haven't we? We all have these moments and it's, uh, to me, it's about understanding what you have control over and focusing only on that and not worrying about all the variables, all the things that are happening around you, what other people are doing, worrying about you know, all the different factors that you, you cannot affect. So focus on what you're doing, focus on the process of what you need to do to get the best performance and the result will take care of itself. You don't think about the, the fear of failure. You don't think about how good it would be to win. You know, people often say, did you focus on the gold medal? Did you focus on winning? I never did, you know, because you, it depends on other people. So you've got to focus on what you do yourself. So yeah, I'd say, Control the controllables. That's the, the biggest lesson I learned. Yeah. Um, so take us back. So when you um, were little, like we've got some little people sitting down here, haven't we? Got my little two, Callum and Chloe. I think they're, they're looking they're at They're probably on the iPhone castle. or something, yeah. I made a mistake. I met them and I said, do you know there's the world's biggest bouncy castle? So now they don't want to watch Their it. Their eyes widened <laughs> like that, yeah. Um, yeah, so you took up cycling quite late, didn't you? Yeah, well, I was... Well, yeah, I was six before I learned to ride a bike and I was inspired to cycle, not by watching the Tour de France or the Olympic Games. Um, it was the film E.T. that I watched. Of course it was. Like, like everyone else, surely. Um, yeah, I'd never seen a BMX bike before and that was the very first time. And at, to, to a six-year-old's eyes, this was the most exciting thing possible. You know, getting to jump a bike and take care and carve it through the corners. It wasn't just like riding around and doing your cycling proficiency and all that. It was actually exciting and dramatic. And Did you think you were going to fly? Well, I never, I never thought I'd get an alien and fly into the sky. I was daft, but I wasn't that daft. But um, 
yeah, that, that was it. And, and at no point did I think that would be the start of a journey towards competing for your country at the Olympic Games. But yeah. I guess every journey starts with that moment of inspiration. And, and, and that was it for me. Was BMX your first bike then? Well, my first bike was actually... Well, my parents are, are good thrifty Scots, so it, I think they thought it was going to be a, a passing fad. So rather than spend £115 on a, a rally super burner, which is what I really wanted, um, they went to the, a, a local jumbo sale and bought this second-hand bike for £5. My dad resprayed it black and he put BMX stickers on it and changed the bars. And so, um, But it was brilliant. I loved it. I loved it. And, and it's, you know, um, I went into the local BMX track and used to build ramps in my back garden. I mean, I broke it within a month. So, you know, you buy, you buy cheap, you buy twice. That's the lesson there. But um, it's, uh, it was, that was my, my first bike. And you never forget your first bike, do you? No, absolutely not. I remember mine. We bought it in Brixton and it was probably 25th hand or something. And it was blue and it was kind of sit up. And that, you're right, I absolutely loved it. It got stolen and I'm still gutted. Uh, but it's weird, isn't it? It's like your first car. What was your first car? Well, my first car... Yeah, technically, my first car was um, my parents' Citroen Xantia. They had, I mean, I'd done 130,000 miles, and it, I, I passed my test only because I had, because I used to cycle everywhere. That was my, my mode of transport in Edinburgh. But it was, the velodrome in Manchester opened up in 1994, and I had to get from university in Edinburgh to get into Manchester every second weekend. So I passed my driving test, borrowed uh, the family car, and it kind of became mine after a while. My mum kept asking, you know, when are we getting this car back? And my dad was like, I think, I think it's gone now. I think we can say goodbye to that. But it was, it was brilliant and it was bloody awful because it, it used to, the suspension had this kind of air suspension that would just, without warning, would just drop. So you're driving along the motorway and then out of nowhere, it just suddenly you're, you're bouncing along and you're kind of trying to adjust the heights and it would kind of either go up to, jacked up to like a monster truck or it would go back down low and, and, and it was at a time before mobile phones or before I had a mobile phone. So I used to take a mental note of where those emergency points were on the motorway. So you think, well, it'll be quicker to walk back that way or maybe I'll, you know, I'll head forward to the next one because it was so, so unreliable. And that journey down the M6, it was, uh, yeah, it was an adventure. Oh, what fun. So you went to the track with, with the bike that then broke. And when did you sort of realise that you were going to be a good cyclist? Well, I, I wasn't particularly good. There was no eureka moment and I... You know, I, I got a, a little medal, a silver medal at my first race doing BMX. But there was always, there always seemed to be somebody who was better. You know, you, you had to work so hard for every single race that you got any medal or cup in. And I would win the odd race now and again. But I, I was never the kid you would pick out as a future champion. And I think it's a really good lesson to learn. And when I speak to parents or kids who are getting into sports or music or whatever their interests are, you know, you don't have to be the best when you're really young. You need to be, you've got to have a passion for what you do. You've got to love what you do and you've got to work hard. But you've basically got to compare yourself to what you were like yesterday. You know, you don't have to worry about comparing yourself to others. Be better than you were yesterday. That's all you've got to do. And you, if, you can, if you do that, if we all do that, it doesn't matter who you are and what you do. If you, you know, you can compare yourself to anyone else, you'll always find someone that's better or more successful or having a better time, you know, on social media. Looks happier. Yeah, exactly. But don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to yourself yesterday and that, that's your, that is your benchmark. It changed my life the first time I went to a track because I did, and I'm not sure if you saw it, on BBC Breakfast we did this competition inspired by you actually, watching, watching you in the Olympics, did a competition cycling against each other in the Manchester Velodrome, blew my mind and I literally took up cycling having left it years ago that day. So the Velodrome's a very special place. Who, who here has been to a Velodrome? Yeah, loads oh, of wow. you. It's an amazing place, and if you haven't been to a velodrome, 
You don't even need to cycle around it. They are just very intense, very beautiful places, actually, with a very special atmosphere. I've really sold it, haven't I? So, <laughs> was it like that for you when you first went into a velodrome? Well, I was just lucky because I had a velodrome in my home city and I, I watched the, the Commonwealth Games in 86 in Edinburgh when I was 10 years old. I'd never seen track cycling before. I saw it on TV, Eddie Alexander getting the bronze medal in the sprint and he was, you know, a Scottish cyclist back then. And, and realising this, this facility is in my home city. And I, at that point, I was doing BMX and I didn't think any more, anything more of it, but... It was probably five years later, the first time I actually tried it, I would have been, yeah, 15, 14 or 15. And I remember walking in. So if any of you have actually seen a velodrome up close and, you know, been in there, you'll know what I mean. I walked in the tunnel, came out to the infield and looked around at these bankings. And they were, you know, they're, they're 45 degrees, but they look like they're about 90 degrees. You know, it's like a wall of death. And these guys were riding around the top of the track. And I remember thinking, there's no way I'm going up there. You know, it's just, it's not going to happen. It was really scary, really intimidating. So, so now if I'm, you know, doing coaching for, you know, a group of novices or, uh, you know, a, a new group coming to the track, I always try and remember what it was like because it is intimidating, it is scary, but it, anyone can do it. All you got to do, it sounds, sounds silly, but all you got to do is keep pedaling. You got to keep the pressure on the pedals. You keep the grip and you won't fall off. But the, the bikes have got no brakes. Yeah. I was going to say, keep pedaling, because if you don't keep pedaling, what happens? Yeah, well, you, you basically go over the bars, because <laughs> there's no freewheel. You can't, you can't stop pedaling, but if you try and stop pedaling, the pedals keep going, and you get thrown over the front of your bike. And that's always quite nice to find out just before you get on the track. There's no brakes, there's no gears. I mean, it's utterly terrifying, but a brilliant thing to do. Apart from that, it's great, yeah. I, don't, I shouldn't ask this. I mean, you, thought you must have fallen off there a million times. Loads of times, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, some... I look back on my career, and actually... I was pretty lucky. I had a few big ones. The worst was 2009. I landed on my hip in a crash in, in Copenhagen. Basically, yeah, I had to have 10 weeks of no movement of my hip. So in the end, I think, do you know what? It was one of the best things that happened for me because it gave me a complete break after Beijing in 2008. I had a massive build-up to Beijing, huge success there, really exciting, and all the media attention afterwards. And I hadn't really given myself time to come off that high before starting to build up to London 2012. So it gave me a proper break. I had a chance to reflect and decide, you know, am I really committed for this last three years up to, to London? Do I really want to go through all this again? And the answer was yes. You know, I, I missed it so much that I was, I came back recharged. My body was back to normal and ready to go. That's very interesting because lots of people have injuries and think it's, you know, that it's game over, but it doesn't need to be. It's, I guess you've got to trust in the, in the support around you, your physiotherapist, the people that, when they say to you rest, they mean it, you know, you, 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 and I, I know that you're, you, you know, <laughs> that's something you're going to have to, advice you're going to have to take. I had an operation last week. Yeah. <laughs> She's already trying to get back on the bike and do, yeah. <laughs> you, you've got, you've got to listen. That's the thing. It's because it's, you think what you're going to gain from getting back in a day early or a week early versus what damage can you do long term? Because your targets, I mean, what's the next big and triathlon target? The next big target is to follow him again on the bike and maybe be a little bit faster next year. Um, tell me about, so you've got six Olympic gold medals. Where are they? I have to cut them on here, actually. If I just, <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you in case I get burgled, but um, yeah. <laughs> Bad question. <laughs> anyway, so of those six, and we've talked about this before, which is your favourite? And talk us through the race. It's like picking your favourite child. <laughs> the, it's they're not still they're not here. I'll tell you which one it is if they're not here. Do you know what? It's the first gold medal. When you become Olympic champion, when you've been aiming for this one thing for your whole your whole life up until that point, and it's... It's something you dream about. It's something that you, your, your heroes 
are, you know, your Olympic heroes are, are a different breed to you and you think, you know, you don't see yourself in the same level as them. And it's, so it almost seems impossible to become Olympic champion. And so that very first time in Athens in 2004, becoming Olympic champion, when they announce your name and you're standing behind the podium, they say, Chris Hoy from Great Britain, the Olympic gold medalist and Olympic champion. And you think, you, you, you just can't believe it. And ever, ever since that day, you know, I get referred to as Olympic champion. So that was the biggest, the biggest change in my life happened in that day. And that medal, ironically, it's the least impressive medal when you look at it. It's the smallest. It's, you know, the ribbon is all kind of crinkly. Um, it looks a bit kind of tired, but, you know, compared to the kind of arms race of medals since then, the medals have got bigger and bigger and more blingy, but it's the smallest medal. But I think that's the one that means the most, um, as well as the one from London, the last one from London, which we kind of top, yeah. top and tailed my, my Olympic. Okay, just taking a pause to tell you about AG1, also supporting this particular podcast. AG1, I'm asked all the time about the one thing I do to take care of my health. If I could pick only just one product, it would be foundational nutrition. And AG1 is a top foundational nutrition product. I can't think of any other daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, according to people that I really look up to who really know their stuff. AG1 is recommended by such luminaries as Rich Roll, the amazing professor, Dr. Andrew Schieberman, Tim Ferriss, and our one, our only Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. AG1 was created in 2010 and has helped millions of mornings begin on a healthier foundation ever since. My wife takes it, I take it, even our 14-year-old son Noah takes it now. He swears by it. AG1 is not only a high-quality, all-in-one solution for daily foundational nutrition, it also saves you time, confusion, and money compared to individual supplements that can add up to a small fortune. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and much more in one simple drinkable habit ag1 is great bang for my book as it replaces a lot of these other supplements like a daily multivitamin minerals pre and probiotics for my gut health adaptogens and a greens blend literally all in one scoop of powder i think there's 75 different supplements in each scoop science-driven formulation of vitamins probiotics and whole food source nutrients ag1 is raising the standard for quality in the supplement category just one daily serving gives me the comprehensive foundational nutrition i need Go to drinkag1.com slash how to wow. That's drinkag1.com slash how to wow. Give it a go. Check it out. Let us know how it lands. And now back to the wow. Career. Um, tell me about London because it's just been the anniversary, hasn't it? Yeah, yesterday we're down in at Olympic Park and we had the uh, the lighting of the anniversary cauldron. So we had Ellie Simmons who brought the Paralympic flame. We had uh, Christina Hurugu who brought the Olympic flame and just about took our Have you, you got to look at the off. picture? Literally the fire oh, was... It's, this huge, it's like bigger than this and the flame lit and it went woof. <laughs> Where there's blame, there's a claim, you know. But um, yeah, it was, it was wonderful because we had all these, you know, there's like 60 Olympic and Paralympic athletes there. There were all kinds of people who'd been involved in the journey to make the, the 2012 Games happen. Sadiq Khan had a lovely speech as well. And it was just, you know, first of all, you can't believe 10 years has passed in the blink of an eye. But also just having that opportunity to reflect and to stand there in the Olympic Park and look around and think we were all part of something pretty special. Did you all feel part of 2012? Yes, definitely. Um, there was so much talk then, and I just want to get a sort of philosoph philosophical point of view from you about, you know, legacy and all the rest of it. And we were so enthused. Do you think there has been a good legacy? I, I do, and that's a lot of what we were talking about yesterday. Um, you know, you can look at it on many levels. Locally, 
you look at what has changed in East London, in Stratford and in that, that, that borough around there, and all they had all these school kids in from the local schools to talk about what life is like for them and how much you know, it's changed. So it's impacted locally massively. Look at the beautiful facilities they have access to, the relocation of uh, university campuses and faculties to a broader context in terms of the, the inspiration to get people active. Well, you were talking yourself about being inspired to get on a bike and you know, taking up triathlon. And I think you, know, you can always find a negative in anything if you want to, but I always look for the positive. And I think, do you know what? I think we've inspired a nation, a younger generation who've seen multiple Paralympic and Olympic champions. You know, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think when you have these heroes, these sporting heroes, you think maybe I could do that. And for the rest of us, you're a bit older, it just inspires us to get active and go out and try something new and think, yeah, do you know what? I've not ridden a bike for 20 years. I'm going to give it a go again. I'd have, someone had bumped into me and said, my mum was 68 when she watched the, the, the Olympics in London and she'd never ridden a bike. She'd never learned to ride a bike. And she was inspired by watching you ride in the velodrome and she's learned to ride a bike aged 68. So you think, well, if there's, you know, there's a great example of the impact that... that inspiration can have so let's talk a little bit about because you're you know you're hugely passionate about getting people into sport there are lots of young people sitting down here today um to parents who would like their children to get into cycling for example what is your advice well i guess yeah the, at the very beginning learning to ride a bike balanced bikes are great they didn't have them no. even when my children were small stabilizers i think are a Whichever way you want to do it as a parent, you know, you, there's, there's, everyone's always giving you advice. But from a cycling perspective, I would say ditch the stabilizers, go for a balanced bike. You don't even have to buy a balanced bike. You can just take the pedals off a regular bike, put the saddle down so your feet are flat on the floor. And then the kid has the control and the confidence. And they can, if they're overbalancing, they put their feet down and they push themselves along. They lift their feet up. They get the control and the confidence. Then you raise the saddle, you put the pedals back on. You know, kids know how to turn their legs around. You know, they're used to that motion. They can do that easily. Um, once you've got beyond learning to ride a bike, and if you're keen, you know, first of all, just go out, have fun, find quiet places to ride. You don't have to go on the roads, get, you know, bike paths, parks, whatever. Get out, make it fun, make it just something that you enjoy doing. And if they go beyond that and they, they're competitive like I was and they want to race, the best thing, contact British Cycling, find a local club, find, you know, somewhere, that, a group of riders that are similar age and have the same interests. And that, that you know, gives them the opportunity and, and the chance to take it a little bit further. What about, um, you know, people who are understandably, and I get nervous, uh, going out on roads? It is the biggest barrier, I think, to stopping people from riding their bikes more often. It's like, well, I would love to ride to work, but the roads are really busy. Um, I guess, yeah, solutions. There, there's, there's lots of ways around it. Finding a slightly longer route that avoids the main roads. It's not always possible. Um, E-bikes, you know, e-bikes are great. If you're on an e-bike, you can accelerate away from your set of traffic lights and you've got big trucks and cars around you. Often it's that first few pedal revs, getting going, getting your feet in, wobbling along before you're up to speed and they're all overtaking you. If you can be on an e-bike, get clear of the traffic, you have that a bit more confidence in, in you know, even short hills. You're not going slowly up the hills. You can keep your speed up. So yeah, I, when e-bikes first came out, I was a real, I was like, e-bikes, you know. It's about, cycling's about exercise and about using your legs and your lungs. And then I tried one, and actually an e-bike isn't a scooter, it's not a motorbike. You're not just sitting with your hand on the throttle. You still contribute to the power using your legs. So it's like having a, an invisible hand just give you a little shove when you hit the bottom of a hill or when you're accelerating away. 
So, you know, uh, yeah. And you're doing some work on e-bikes. Yeah, so we've, rather than having to spend, you know, thousands of pounds on another bike. They're They are, they're expensive and they're big and they're often very heavy as well. So when the battery goes flat, then you're kind of stuck. But so, that, yeah, I basically have got invo involved with this, this company called Scarper. And um, here's the pitch. Um, basically, it's a clip-on motor and a battery in one. So it drives the rear disc on the disc brake. And so any bike you can convert into an e-bike, but also convert straight back. So it takes two seconds. You clip, clip, it's on, and you ride to work, unclip it, charge it up at your desk. You know, it's, it weighs two and a half kilos. And it's, I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. The guy who invented it, he's one of these really annoying people who's just really smart and comes up with lots of, you know, most people have, if they're lucky, have one invention or one idea in their whole lifetime. He's a doctor working during the pandemic came up with a new kind of ventilator, took it to Red Bull Advanced Technologies. They, they rolled it out now, so the NHS has thousands of these amazing new, cheaper to make and more effective ventilators. And then he was on holiday in the Alps mountain biking, and he's quite, he's quite a big lad. He got, he's walking up the hill pushing his bike, thinking there's got to be an easier way than buying an e-bike. And he looked at his bike and he worked it out, and he's come up with this new concept. And the, the, the patented technology is actually in the disc brake, so there's like a new internal part of the disc brake. And he's come up with a second, second idea in the space of like six months. But they're a brilliant team. You know, it's, a, it's, an all, it's based in, down in London. And I'm really excited to be part of it. And I've been helping them with the, the cycling-specific part of the, the product. Who here has got an e-bike? Has anybody got an e-bike? Yeah, look. Joyful hands we have with big smiley faces. The other thing is you don't have to be the same as good as the person you're cycling with, do you? Well, well that's, that's the beauty of it. So, you know, if you're riding with somebody who's very experienced, goes out all the time, you don't want to slow them down. You, you feel like you can't keep up with that group or that individual. Do you think I could actually keep up with you if I was riding an e-bike? I was e thinking of the way around, Louise. I was thinking of the way around. <laughs> I don't think on I the hills. Yeah, basically, you clip it on and you could go out for a ride so on the flat. You just you don't have to use it. But when you hit the hills, it can give you a nice little shove to keep up. Brilliant. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really versatile. You can ask questions in a second. And we've got microphones. So if you think about putting your hand up, think about the question. A final question for the moment, at least. Um, I've asked about your, your car. You've talked about your favorite child, which you would, didn't say, by the way. They're back in now. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about your favorite bike? Oh, my favorite bike. Um, oh, there's so many. Do you know what? I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I don't know if it's my favorite bike, but I've got an old mountain bike that I raced on when I was about 15 that my dad got um, refurbed as a surprise, as a present for last year. Oh, that's lovely. It's this beautiful old bike from 1991, an off-road Proflex. It was one of the first ever full suspension bikes. And it was immaculate. And, and I was you know, quite emotional when he gave me this bike. And I've got these photos of me racing in it when I was 14, 15. Anyway, yesterday, went into the shed. And there was this, a yellow lump of goo on the, on the floor. And I didn't know what it was. I, was trying, I, was, I genuinely thought, what on earth is that? Went over to it, sort of went to prod it. And it was hard. And I looked up and above it, my bike was hanging on the rack in the heat. This is the, the, the kind of rubber polymer part of the suspension had melted. I mean, I, I put it on, uh, on Twitter. I'll you stick on it. It's unbelievable. I was like, is it broken? I mean, I've never broken. known a bike to melt before. I mean, it, you know, it's getting hot <laughs> when a bike melts. But yeah, so I shouldn't probably say this, but the, we did do a briefing call before um, this conversation. He was actually in his paddling pool at the time. <laughs> I'm a Scot, you know, I've got, I've got to stay cool somehow. But uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was it's, such, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. So I'm sure you've got questions. We've got a few microphones. Um, if you want to put up your hands, we'll get some of them to you. So where, where are the microphones? There's questions here and there's questions there. So 
Can you see? Brilliant. So, and there's questions at the back. Have we got, have we got two microphones? Good. Thank you. Go for it. Uh, Commonwealth Games around the corner. Team GB or Scotland? Oh, it's too... Yeah, good, good, good question. But um, do you know what? I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive. I think you can, you can be proud to both. And, you know, I was never more proud than bringing the flag into the stadium at the opening ceremony in London 2012 and David Bowie's heroes playing and the gold confetti cannons going off. And, I mean, what, a, what an experience. But equally pulling on the Scotland jersey, it's the only opportunity you get um, in cycling, certainly, to be... There you go. There's a... Yeah, nice one. It's the only opportunity you get to represent Scotland. And when I grew up, I didn't actually grow up dreaming of being an Olympic champion. I grew up wanting to be Scotland rugby captain. And, you know, it's... That, that was it. It was here in Flower of the Scotland playing at the start, lining up. That gets the kind of... Gets the hair standing up in the back of your neck. And so to get on the podium in... Well, in... 2002 and 2006 to win a gold medal here in Scotland, the Brave the first time, and then Flower of Scotland the second time was a dream come true. So yeah, to me, equally proud for both. Have you thought of being a diplomat? <laughs> yeah, that's called uh, yeah, sitting on the fence. There's a couple of questions at the back there. Um, you got microphone. Go for it. Professional cyclist or professional racing driver? Oh, it's tough. I think seeing how bad I am at driving, I think cycling definitely. Um, no, I, do you know what? I, I wouldn't change anything. I think, I, you know, I, I've got so many amazing memories, so many great experiences. And then to have the opportunity to dip my toe in motorsport, um, I'm very, I'm, I'm happy with that. But equally, I think motorsport, it's, it's a tough one because it's one of the few sports that it isn't necessarily a meritocracy. There's so many fantastic drivers out there who don't get the opportunities. You know, a lot of it is, a, you've got to be great and you've got to be a top driver, but you also need the backing and the opportunity at the right time. Whereas cycling, if you, you know, if you, if you have the, the, the ability and you train hard and potential, you will be given that support and the coaching oh, and on. the opportunity. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Thank God for ET. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good old Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. There's one down here. First of all, let's ask this. Hi one. there. Go for what it. was your first first emotion when you wore a gold medal at the Olympics? Oh, that's a great question. My first emotion. So my first gold medal was in 2004 in Athens, and it was relief. And then, it, and then it was disbelief because, I, you know, I, like I was saying earlier on, I never thought about what would it be like to win the gold medal. I was only thinking about what I needed to do to be the best I could be. And then I would wait and see what happened at the end, wait and see how, where that placed me. So I hadn't thought about what it would be like to win. So I, I crossed the line and it was just like, oh, my, I'm so glad, <laughs> so glad that's over, first of all, because <laughs> the pressure and the buildup and the, the tension before you get on the start gate, like once you actually race, you're fine. It's the minutes before you get onto the bike um, that are the worst. And then disbelief of, I can't believe it. This, this can't be right. And you, you kind of, I rode around for about a lap, just not really knowing what to do. And I thought I should probably put my arm in the air just because it'll look weird if I don't. So I did this really weird sort of wave. And then I spotted my mum and dad, my sister, my family on the side of the track, waving the flag, going absolutely wild. And that's when it kind of sunk in and I kind of, came to and then I was going going crazy but yeah it was it's a it's a flood of emotions and that's that's why you see so many sporting moments where where they're in floods of tears because the emotions are so strong it just overwhelms you and it's um it makes it all all worthwhile and when you watch the videos backwards you know back now when you're you know 20 years on from there 
it, it brings them all back again. That was a great question. Really you good question. think about being a journalist. You're fantastic. And there's a question over here, and then we'll come to the front again. See, when you decided to start cycling, what's your story of like, learning to cycle? Learning to cycle. My dad will be gutted that I'm telling this story because um, it wasn't my dad that taught me to ride a bike. He, I went out to my friend's house, and uh, he was six, I was six. He could cycle. And I could deal with that, you know, it's like, well, fair enough, he rides a bike, yeah, I can't do it. But his little brother was four, oh. and he was riding, and I was like, I'm not having that, no way. So I learned to ride that afternoon, and basically came back, back home. My dad picked me up, mum and dad picked me up, I said, I can ride a bike now, and they're like, what? I said, yeah, I learned to ride a bike today. And he was like, I was looking forward to teaching you how to do that. I was like, well, you know, you missed your chance, so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't tell him I told you that story. It's though. a special moment, isn't it, when you learn? I mean, I remember very clearly when I first was able to cycle, and it's a special moment as well, teaching your children. Presumably you've had that too. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they're just over there, and, and you know, as tough as the pandemic was, and as, as much, you know, life was incredibly difficult for a multitude of reasons for all of us, but one of the few positives was spending time with your kids and to be able to do something that is a life skill to teach them how to ride a bike. Chloe learned... I mean, it's, I sound like a, a, a sort of intense, crazy parent, but Chloe learned when she was two to cycle. Not because I was forcing her to do it, but she was on a balance bike. She could do the balance bike fine. And she was desperate to have a bike like her big brother Callum, a pedal bike. And she just kept asking and asking. And eventually I said, right, we'll get you on it. And she could just reach the pedals. And off she went. It's such a big moment, isn't it? That little, they just go. And we did, during the lockdown, we did, I think it was for BBC Breakfast. There was, uh, I can't remember the reason what it was, but we, we basically got a bit of chalk and drew like yeah, a, a mini velodrome on our driveway. I remember. And it was me and Callum and Chloe doing a team sprint. Um, so Chloe did the first lap, Callum did the second lap, I did the last lap. I obviously had full Lycra and gear <laughs> on and stuff, taking it seriously. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great fun. So yeah, teaching your children to cycle, it's, it, is a, it is something you hopefully they'll never forget and you certainly yeah, never forget. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful moment, isn't it? There was a, young, a question down here. And then there's a couple over here. Are you going to be writing any more books? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. I didn't, I didn't plant that one. Huh. <laughs> Fly Fergus, available now. Um, yeah, it's, we've, at the moment, so I've written, we've written 10 books, the Flying Fergus series, about a little boy who gets a bike for his birthday and goes all, on all kinds of adventures on his bike. Um, and it's, it started out as two books we were going to write. And then we, they, they were, it went quite well, and we enjoyed the process, and we thought, well, we could keep going. We did two more, and in the end, we did 10 for the series. And we've kind of tied it up now. At the moment, there's no plans to do any more Flying Fergus. I did a book called Be Amazing, which was for slightly older kids, 9 to 12-year-olds, and it was more of a, a how-to guide to get the best out of yourself and to, to enjoy what you do, to find your passion, to, to aim high, and to make the most of it. Um, and, but who knows? I've also written a book called How to Ride a Bike, which... Uh, does exactly what it says in the tin. I, do you know, I've, I've got that book. I think, I, think I, I think he might have sent it to me, but I might have bought it. But I, it's a really, how to ride a bike, I really recommend. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's really it's good. good fun. Yeah. Um, there was a question over here. Have you got a mic to... And then I'm going to try and do one here and then one down here. Perfect. Was it hard to train in COVID? Good question. Now, do you know what I... So I stopped competing full-time about 10 years ago so i was quite lucky that during covid i didn't have any major competitions to train for so i still rode my bike and i still tried to keep fit and it wasn't easy because you couldn't go out on your bike for hours and hours you had one hours um, of exercise every day so a lot of us were just doing things at home you know exercises at home 
trying to find a way to, to make the most of the, the situation. But for professional athletes who are competing at the Olympic Games, I take my hat off to them because it, it must have been incredibly difficult. I know that Adam Peaty, you know, the Olympic champion swimmer, he got a massive big tank brought into his house and stuck in his back garden. And he was able to, it had like a kind of a, a artificial current in it where you could swim against it. And he was swimming in his own back garden, stationary, um, a bit like having a treadmill if you're running. Um, so I guess it's about being um, clever as to how you approach it. And, and a lot of athletes were all in the same position. So it's, it's making the best of whatever situation you're in. But for me, I just, I was trying to ride in the virtual world with, yeah, with Louise. Yeah, we did a lot doing of riding. A lot of Zwift rides and uh, yeah, doing what I could. You've got a bit more time, so go on. To you both. Oh. Um, just, uh, I get criticised for having too many bikes in the garage. <laughs> and I wanted to know from you both, what's your number in the real oh. world? Oh, why are you asking me as well? <laughs> Ladies first. <laughs> really? You, I've got to work it. I haven't got to work it out. I've just given away, actually. So my first bike that I did my first triathlon on, I have got, so that was there. And then I've got uh, two, three, maybe five. Five. Um, that's including my static bike that doesn't move. Anyway, my, there, was, there were five. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't clearly ride five bikes. So I just gave away my first triathlon bike that I did my first race on. And it's been, it is now racing uh, and the lady did her first triathlon on it um, this summer. So, so we're down to four currently. <laughs> That's not too bad. Is it? I, I'm start, I, I can't even remember. I can't even work out how many. Uh, see, the, the, my excuse is that I've got a bike brand. I've got a business making bikes. So I've got all these different prototypes of bikes. Um, oh, that's your excuse, is Cover it? up Callum and Chloe's ears, but I've got about 10 kids' bikes lined up for them, you know, in terms of... And because they're my little test pilots, so we make bikes for kids, and they can they can sort of give us feedback on that. Um, I've got old bikes. I've got bikes that were team bikes, uh, like road bikes from back in the day. But you know, I saw I'm I'm skirting around Do the you issue. Have like I'm a not bike getting a number. Garage, but... then. <laughs> Can't well, tell us. They're all they're all in pieces, but and it's not like some beautiful, you know, bikes are all racked up in this immaculate display. They're everywhere. But the one bike that I haven't got, which I would love to have, we never got to keep our Olympic bikes. So you win a gold medal on your own, this bike, and you don't get to keep it because the bikes get recycled. They get used for the next um, four years. And my, my London 2012 bike has been used by one of the, the junior riders. Um, wow. So they, they get to ride, you know, which is quite cool in a way you think about it. Imagine being like a 17, 18 year old getting to ride, that's Vicky Pendleton's bike. I'm on Vicky's that's bike. Amazing. Or this is Bradley Wiggins' bike or Chris Hoy or whoever. Um, it's, it's nice, but... You have before, got it. <laughs> before they, yeah, exactly. Before they get scrapped or whatever it'd be lovely if they gave us one bike to keep us a memento and you could put it yeah, on the wall yeah I can understand there's a couple of questions of here and how many have you got by the way six six Goodness. <laughs> n plus one that's how many it's all, exactly yeah. okay um, where was the first place you went to learn your bike the first place I went to learn to ride my bike was it was a place called Napier College so it's now Nap Napier University in Edinburgh and it was when I was at my friend's house and I went up to this, it's like a big courtyard, sort of concrete, nice and smooth, no, no cars or other traffic around. And I went up there with my friend and his little brother and their, their dad and it was just this big open space and that was, that was it. So because I learned there, I named, so we have these kids, another little advert here, um, these kids, kids bike range I do. So we named it the Napier, the Hoy Napier, 
because it's a balanced bike that, I, that you've, you learn to ride a bike on. Oh, that's cute. And one question here. And then I think we've got one at the back and then I think we've, I'll try and, I'll try, oh my gosh, I, go. We'll be quick, do quick answers. Quick answers. How old were you when you started racing for a team? Uh, ooh, good one. I, probably about 16. 16 I was. I wasn't doing it at a really high level when I was younger, but yeah, 16. 16, another question. Um, what was the big... Fastest speed you ever went at on your Great bike? Question. Great question. Great question. Downhill, on the road, I can't tell you because it's above the speed limit, but um, nobody's filming, they're okay. What um, is no, I can't, tell you, I can't tell you that, I can't tell you that. Uh, on the track, uh, 80 kilometers an hour, which is 50 miles an hour. Oh. Not for long, just just for a little blast, for one lap. Terrifying, go. Question. Thank you. Um, can I ask, with all the different cycling disciplines, what was it that made you do track cycling rather than mountain or Tour de France and those other options? Yeah, good question. Um, genetics, I guess, guides you towards what you're, you're better suited to. So I, I tried everything. I did BMX. I started with BMX racing, mountain biking, cyclocross, time trial, road, everything. And then I tried the velodrome. But it wasn't a, a eureka moment. I didn't suddenly walk in and go, yeah, this is it. I, I, but I did enjoy it. I think that's the key thing. I loved it. I love the speed, I love the adrenaline, I love the feeling of the, the G-forces when you go around the bankings. And it was very close to BMX in terms of the sprint element. You know, you're racing for 30 seconds or a minute, you're not doing two hours or three hours. And I'd raced, you know, the Junior Tour of Ireland. I'd, I'd done stage races and I knew that wasn't for me, definitely. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that you, if you have the potential for it, it doesn't mean that you're going to be great straight away. It just means that you, you improve faster and you have a greater sort of ceiling, a greater potential to, to be good at it. I guess you, you tend to enjoy what you're, what you're better at. Quick question, one more. I'll keep it quick. Um, you've got Bradley Wiggins, Mark Cavendish, Chris Boardman. You've got to go on a tandem ride with one of them. <laughs> you've got to uh, go for a drink with one of them and you've got to let one of them's tires down. Oh, that's a great question. Right. Um, well, Bradley Wiggins, I think has stopped drinking, so that rules him out of going out for a drink with him. Um, I would go for a drink with... I've had a... Mark Cavendish is great fun. I'd probably go for a drink with Cav. But mind you, Chris Borman is too. He's more of a real ale kind of guy, you know. Um, I'd, let, I'd let Chris's tyres down because... Uh, yeah, because his bikes sell so well. He's a rival for our bike brand, you know. <laughs> I've just given him an advert as well you for his bike. You just did. You failed. Epic fail. <laughs> um, yeah. What was the other one? Tyres down... Drink. Tandem. Tandem. Yeah, Bradley's still pretty fit. I'd get him on the front of the tandem. I could sit in the back, you know, taking it easy. But yeah, great question. Well great done. question. Listen, I know there's a question here, but why don't you just come and ask, ask it? Because we've got to... Come go on, quickly, go. Uh, hi, Chris. Hi, Louise. If you were to cycle tandem together, uh, who would be in charge and who would be at the front? Oh. <laughs> what do you reckon? I'm definitely in charge. <laughs> <laughs> we need the power at the back, don't we? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, great question. I'd love to do that if it's ever, I would. you know. <laughs> but I would go in the back, to be fair, yeah. Oh, That's the responsibility up front. Oh, God, I'd have to do the steering. I'm not brilliant at that either. Anyway, whatever. Um, what a great question. You've been a fabulous audience. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm going to be here in a minute as well. But so, Chris Hoy, you're absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a superhero.
Okay, just popping back to say thanks to Louise Minchin and to Chris Hoy for that amazing conversation recorded live at Carfest last year. If you fancy more of that live this year, check out carfest.org for tickets. August 25th, August 26th, August 27th this year. I really genuinely hope to see you there. And remember, all profits from Carfest go to amazing, mostly kids' UK charities. Thanks for listening.